0: Welcome to this edition of The Gateway Podcast. Thanks for connecting with us. To discover more about our faith community, feel free to visit our website, gatewaychurch.org.nz. May this message be an encouragement to you. So good to see you and add my welcome to Chris's. It's lovely to have you here. Thanks for coming. Um, we're doing a series from, that we've entitled From Easter to Pentecost. One of the resources that we have highly recommended is a book by the name uh, by an author called Peter Grigg. Uh, Peter is the founder of um, 24/7 Prayer, and it's just such an excellent little resource. I know probably you've read a hundred books on prayer, and and at least 75% of those have been frustrating and haven't necessarily helped you. I just found this one simple, easy. Um, I highly recommend it to you. Last week, Chris began the series and uh, he drew our attention to the fact that between Easter and Pentecost, one of the factors that um, is front and center in the life of the disciples was, was their prayer. And Acts chapter 1 verses 12 through 14 reads, the disciples left the Mount of Olives and returned to Jerusalem, which was less than a mile away. Arriving there, they went into a large second floor room to pray. Those present were Peter, John, Jacob, Andrew, Philip, Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, Jacob the son of Alphaeus, Simon the zealot, Judas the son of Jacob, and a number of women including Mary, Jesus' mother. His brothers were there as well. All of them were united in prayer, gripped with one passion, interceding night and day. So we thought it would be really good, leading up to Pentecost, to spend a bit of time talking about our prayer lives, our personal prayer lives, our, our corporate prayer. Um, it is a very basic, very practical level teaching. It's not some advanced uh, level spiritual warfare or some theological treatise, uh, and as Chris said last week, the last thing it's designed to do is to make you feel guilty um more guilty than most of us already feel when it comes to the area of prayer or lack thereof. So it's a, it's a very simple how and why. Much of what I want to share with you over the next couple of weeks is incredibly personal. Um, I, I didn't know ha- ha- how to go about this, but it it um, it is a very personal approach to how I pray. And uh, I want to say right at the beginning, I'm not talking about how I pray because I'm some kind of expert, I am very much a fellow struggler when it comes to prayer. And sometimes I think my prayer life could be summed up in three words, good, bad, and at times ugly. Uh, I, so I'm no expert. I'm no Reese House, David Brainard, or praying John Hyde. I've read their stories like you and have come away probably as you have, inspired and intimidated in equal measure. When it comes to prayer, as uh, as is true of so many areas of my life, I describe myself as a plodder. I look at those who fly, run, and even jog in prayer with a degree of envy. I'm a plodder. I've plodded for nearly fifty years. I still regard myself as a rank amateur in the field of prayer. Nevertheless, I have persisted. And in his book, Peter Gregg talks. He begins by talking about three really simple principles on prayer, and he suggests that we keep it simple we keep it real and we keep it up. I'm not so sure how often my prayers have been simple or real, but I have kept it up. Um, What I want to do with you over this next couple of weeks is just share with you um, my pattern of prayer. And I'm not doing that because I think my pattern is more effective than yours. For a start, I don't know what yours is. Uh, And for many of you, I look at you and think you probably have a better pattern than I do. And so you can opt out right now, you can go and do emails or Facebooks for for 25 minutes. Um, I see some of you have already started. uh, um. I'm addressing my remarks to fellow strugglers for whom even the word prayer is somewhat intimidating and daunting. Um, What I'll share, uh, I have shared before, so for some of you if it sounds familiar, uh, it probably is. I want to begin by answering two simple questions, two crucial questions really. And the first is, why bother? And the second is, okay, so uh, you've convinced me that I should bother. Um, How do you actually get about it? How do you do it? So firstly, why bother? And perhaps another way of phrasing that question is, Really, Don, does it make any difference? I mean, you hear people say, look, God is sovereign. He doesn't need my help. He doesn't need my prayers. What he does is will what he wills. And I'm not even sure if my prayers make a difference. And to be fair, there are some scholars who who talk like that. They say prayer isn't about changing God's will. You know, if you go to prayer thinking you're going to change God's will, you're going to be very disappointed. The purpose of prayer is actually to change you. Now, while I do believe that prayer changes us, I have major issues with such a stance. And I think if you look at issues like Abraham haggling almost with God over the number who would be needed to save Sodom and Gomorrah, if you see Hezekiah turning his face to the wall and weeping and praying for an extension of his life, then I find it hard not to see that God actually is moved by prayer and that he changes his mind almost, as it were. I think the whole idea of God's unchangeable sovereign will, you know, God wills what he wills. We pray, but it's all about changing us. He does not change. For me, that's more akin to Allah's, uh, to to Islam's Allah wills it than it is to Christian teaching. And it's what I call Doris Day theology, que Sarah Sarah. what will be, will be. Uh, I don't think the Bible teaches that. I don't plan to unpack that in any depth, sufficient to say that I do think that Scripture teaches that God is sovereignty, but I think that in his sovereignty, he's determined that you and I, his people, will partner with him in the co-governance and administration of earth's affairs, and that happens through our prayers. The Bible teaches he's made us a kingdom of priests, kings and priests, and he intends us as kings and priests to co-govern with him through the power of prayer. So author and pastor John Piper puts it this way. He says, prayer is the coupling of primary and secondary causes. It is the splicing of our limp wire to the lightning bolt of heaven. How astonishing it is that God wills to do his work through people. It is doubly astonishing that he ordains to fulfill his plans by being asked to by us. You know, if you read Ezekiel chapter 36, it's a chapter full of hope and full of things that God promises to do. He speaks to Israel about all of the things that he plans to do. And then in verse 37 of that chapter, he says, thus saith the Lord God, I will also let the house of Israel inquire of me to do this for them. Now he's just said in a long list what he plans to do. And then he adds, but I want you to ask me that I might do those things. He doesn't say, I will do what I will do in spite of what you ask. He says, this is what I want to do, but I want you to partner with me. I want you to ask. I want you to pray. Praying really does make a difference. Sometimes I hear people saying about a particular situation, well, all things will work together for good. God will work all things together together for good and of course they are quoting partially and selectively a passage from Romans 8 but it's really important that when you get promises like that you read them in a proper context and the context is Holy Spirit inspired prayer listen to this this is the message translation of Romans 8 26 to 28 Meanwhile, the moment we get tired in the waiting, God's Spirit is right alongside helping us along. If we don't know how or what to pray, it doesn't matter. He does our praying in and for us, making prayer out of our wordless sighs, our aching groans. He knows far better than we know ourselves, knows our pregnant condition, and keeps us present before God. That's why Okay. Take note of that phrase. That is why. Context, Holy Spirit-inspired prayer, that's why we can be sure, so sure that every detail in our lives uh, of love for God is worked out into something good. It's not just a willy-nilly promise that, oh, well, whatever happens, God will work together for good. It's in the context of Holy Spirit-inspired prayer that that happens. And the very real implication is if we don't pray, things will not work out for good. Why bother? Because it really matters. It, it categorically makes a difference in the affairs of the earth. Now, you don't have to be a massive prayer warrior like Reese Howes or John Hyde, but, you, but we do have to pray. So it really does matter. Why bother? Because it makes a difference. Secondly, the second question is, well, okay, how, how, does it, how does it happen? How do you How do you pray? Well, the disciples asked that question of of Jesus in Luke chapter 11, verse 1. It says, One day he was praying in a certain place. When he finished, one of his disciples said, Master, teach us to pray just as John taught his disciples. Now, Jesus' disciples were Jewish lads. They weren't prayerless pagans. They prayed daily. They prayed weekly. They prayed monthly. These were a people who prayed. They weren't saying, hey, will you teach us how to do this? We've never done this before. These were praying boys. What they were saying is, We've never heard praying like this. Can you teach us to pray in the way that you pray? And what I want to do over the next couple of weeks is look at you, look with you at Jesus' reply. Before I do, can I suggest a couple of very practical steps before we go into praying through this prayer that Jesus taught his disciples? And the two things, real simple set a time. Find a place. Set a time. Friends, prayer is too important to leave to chance, to engage in only when you feel spontaneously, authentically, emotionally moved to do it. If you wait for a spontaneous, authentic, uh, uh, emotional, you're just never going to get there. Set a time. It's really important. It's far too weighty to leave to the mercy of your feelings, your moods, your hormones, your impulses. Some of you say, well, Don, isn't that insincere? You know, if I don't feel like it, isn't that just like going through the motions? Well, I love what Pete Gregg says about that. He says, there doesn't have to be anything insincere about going through the motions when these motions express something that we cannot say in any other way. We get to it. Listen, I know prayer is not easy. I know, like you, It's work. It's, it's war. The world we live in is contested space and there are forces dead set on, in, and, and invested in you not being a praying person. You not setting a time. You not being one of those people that pray and, and, and join with God in the co-governance of Earth's affairs. There are powers invested in you not praying. That's why it's so difficult. Um, for me, I have to resolve a time when I pray. I determine that I will pray. Proverbs chapter 4, verse 7 in the Living Bible, it struck me one time when it says, determination to become wise is the first step in becoming wise. Proverbs declare that you don't stumble accidentally into wisdom. You have to determine that that will be who you are. And prayer is no different. You won't accidentally stumble into a life of prayer. You have to say, this is really important. I know it's important. Intuitively, I know it's important. I've been meaning to do this for so long, I resolve, I determine to do it. You know, our culture places high value on spontaneity, on authenticity. You know, unless I feel that I'm doing this out of genuine desire and genuine delight, it feels forced and unreal, Look, there are times when genuinely it is a delight, but not always in my experience, and if I'm honest, mostly not often. For me, prayer and worship isn't always entered into out of a great overflow of emotion. Now, if you observed, you know, observing from the outside, you might imagine that perhaps I'm being Uh, emotionally moved on as I worship and as I pray. And you might think, well, he lifts his hands, he kneels, he, he seems to get really into it. More often than not for me, this is not about emotion, it's about formation. And those two things are different. Perhaps even mostly, I am using my body in those moments to take my heart to a place that it's presently not at, It's the determined, willful intention. It's the posturing of my heart through my physical actions. I lift my heart with my hands, as Jeremiah says. I don't necessarily do it out of an overflow of emotion. I use my body to take my heart to a place that it isn't presently at. It's not about emotion. It's about formation. And prayer is exactly like that. You're determined to do it. You go to that place. You say, well, I don't feel authentic. Forget feeling authentic. Some soldiers don't feel authentic soldiers until they get fired at and until they fire back. So set a time. Secondly, find a place. Jesus prayed in a certain place. It seemed that there were places that really were Uh, where he retreated with some degree of regularity for extended times of prayer. The Garden of Gethsemane was such a place. That's why Judas knew where Jesus would be on the night he was arrested. He took the arresting party straight to where he knew Jesus would be. He had been there many times with Jesus before for prayer. You know, the ancient Celtic Christians understood very well that the Holy Spirit could saturate a place as easily as he could saturate people, and they evocatively described such places as thin places. Thin places where they were locations where it seemed that heaven and earth seemed to touch, or at least seemed to be in incredibly close proximity. I was contemplating that idea of a thin place this week when a question and a thought struck me in quick succession. The question was, well, how does a place become a thin place? You know, is there something inherent in a location? Is there some kind of heavenly portal that you you stumble on and you think, oh my goodness, I've found a thin place. The thought that struck me straight afterwards was perhaps it becomes thin because it gets worn thin by repetition and by persistence. In the same way that you wear a pair of jeans or trousers through. Of course, today you can buy your jeans already hold and worn and thin. Classic now generation, you know? You, you don't even take the time to wear out your own jeans and you bleep to me about authenticity. Just kidding, tongue in cheek, okay? Perhaps we create a thin place by wearing it thin. Your thin place might be a special chair. It could be your spare room. It could be a loft. It could be the place where you walk. It could even be a literal closet. I remember going around to a person's place one time, and they said, hey, Don, I want to show you something. The other week, you said, go into your closet and close it and pray to your father's. And he'd taken all his clothes out of his closet, and he'd set up a prayer thing in his closet. I I don't care where it is. If you want to do that, do it. But set a time, find a place say, well, Don, I've done those things before, and when I get there, I just don't know what to do. I I sit, I stare out the window, my mind wanders all over the place. Well, I'm tempted to say what a teacher said to one of his pupils when he saw their thoughts wandering. He said, son, you shouldn't let your mind wander. It's way too small to be out by itself. (laughs) But I wouldn't be so cruel because I am a fellow wanderer, Okay. When the disciples said, Can you teach us to pray? He gave them this famous prayer that we now call the Lord's Prayer. I wonder that it shouldn't be better called the Disciples' Prayer. When we were Catholics, we simply called it the Our Father. 31 words in the original language, and originally it rhymed. It seemed that Jesus gave them a poem to help them pray. And it is simple and simply profound. Archbishop Justin Welby said the Lord's Prayer is simple enough to be memorised by small children and profound enough to sustain a whole lifetime of prayer. You can pray it as it stands and it'll take you 25 seconds, or you can use it as a pattern of prayer and seriously, it can take hours. It's that prayer, it's this prayer that has sustained my prayer life for the last four decades and counting. I began to use it as a pattern for prayer in the 1980s, and I still use it today, and I haven't become tired of it or bored with it, and I'm really hopeful God feels the same way. <laughs> I've varied it, I've experimented with it, but essentially, over those four decades, I haven't wandered far from it. As I say, please forgive the personal nature of what I'm about to share. In essence, I'm gonna walk you through my prayer time with some, quite a few sidebar comments along the way. Um, Jesus said, Go into your closet, praise the, uh, close the door, and pray to your Father in secret. I really hope He doesn't mind, but this morning I'm inviting you all to come into the closet with me. It's a pretty crowded place, but um, this is how it goes. I start off, Our Father, which art in heaven. Sidebar immediately. The opening two words, Our Father, reminds me and confronts me with three realizations who God is, who I am, who we are together. Who God is, His Father. He's he's Abba. Jesus called him Abba. That's an incredibly intense word in the Hebrew. The disciples and Jesus' contemporaries were shocked beyond measure to hear Jesus addressing the transcendent covenant-keeping God, Yahweh, as Abba. Nobody did that. They didn't pronounce his name. They didn't write his name. And here's Jesus in this incredibly intimate language, Abba. To call Abba... To call Yahweh Abba was unthinkable for them. To Jesus, it wasn't. And for us in Him, it isn't either. Romans chapter 8, verse 15 says, This resurrection life you receive from God is not a timid, grave tending life. It's adventurously expectant, greeting God with a childlike, What's next, Baba? God's spirit touches our spirit and confirms who we really are. We know who He is and we know who we are, Father and children. He's a Father. He's an intimate, loving, gracious Father. Now, whenever you use that terminology, I'm, as a pastor, very aware that for many people, the concept and word Father is not one that's either endearing or attractive. And the concept of Father for many lies broken and bruised in the mud of human failure. And some people really struggle with the notion of God's goodness or the love of God because the failure of your human Father. But I would want to say to you, even so come. Even even with that, come. Come where you're at. Don't wait for it to be different. Start with where you're at. Uh, he can restore and renew. Just come. He's a father. That passage, our father also tells me who I am, as the Romans passage makes clear, he's father, I'm a child. 1 John chapter 3, verse 1, what a marvelous love the father has extended to us. Just look at it. We're called children of God, and that's who we really are. We are his beloved children. And we need to remind ourselves of that. We're called Christians, I think, three times in the New Testament. In the New Testament, we're called beloved 56 times. You are my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. I don't know what you're like, but sometimes I go into the presence of the Lord feeling this low-grade sense of his annoyance at me. You know, I haven't done this. I didn't do that well. I spoke unwisely or harshly there, and I have this sense of him putting up with me. And I honestly have to remind myself that he is a gracious, kind, loving father and the unchecked disposition of his heart is toward you. He's not upset with you, angry with you, smoldering, just waiting for you to put a foot out of line. He's a gracious father and he says, come, come as you are. It also reminds us of who we are. It's our father, not my father. And it reminds me that I'm part of a family. You know, it is so easy for us in this me-centered generation to forget the sacredness of others. They are bit bit actors on the center. And and this reminds us we are part of a family. We are family. We are siblings. We are in this together for better or worse. You know, the other day I was reading uh, an article by the great English wit G.K. Chesterton and it just made me smile. He was talking about people in his day, and that was the late 1800s, early 1900s, and he was talking about this movement from, the, from families and the rural settings, and people were moving into the city uh, to broaden their horizons. And uh, Chesterton wasn't against cities per se, but he noted that when these kind of people who were going there to broaden their horizons got to the city, they joined clubs, societies, and groups of people just like themselves. And he observed that in larger communities we can choose our own companions and the companions we choose inevitably look like us. Today we would call it living in echo chambers. We're actually narrowed all the while, seeking desperately to be regarded as broad-minded. And in his inimitable humorous style, Chesterton suggested that it's actually families that are designed by God to make us broad-minded and are much better at doing the jobs than the clubs, societies and, and gatherings in the big city. And he said this, The best way that a man could test his readiness to encounter the common variety of mankind would be to drop down a chimney into any house at random and get on as well as possible with the people inside. And that's essentially what each one of us did on the day that we were born. In a city, we can choose our companions. In a family, our companions are chosen for us. And family life is challenging. It's it's our father. We're family. We're siblings. Perhaps that's why a couple of lines later, Jesus says, and forgive people their sins because it depends, my forgiveness to you depends on your forgiveness of others. We, we need to be a forgiving family. This is a family prayer. So the first two words then remind us of who God is, who I am, and who we are, so let me start again. Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. I'm not gonna do a study on the word hallowed, essentially it's about worship. It's about the giving of thanks, and I start my prayer time Just with an extended period of saying thank you. Thank you for all you have done for me. Thank you for who you are. Psalm 100 uh, verse 4 says, Enter his gates with thanksgiving. Come into his courts with praise. Be thankful to him. Bless his name. Love the message translation which says, Enter with the password of thanks. And friends, I have so much to be thankful for. I thank God for the time that I have lived. You've heard me talk about this before, but quite frankly, we've lived in a bubble, in my era at least anyway. I've never had to go to war. I've never seen a revolution. I've never seen people being um, torn apart by, by, by military means. I've, I've lived in this incredible time. I thank God for the time that I've lived. I thank God for the place that I've lived. I heard somebody bleating on the other day about our freedoms being taken from us. Sorry, this is going to be personal, but, but, uh, but I, I wanted to say to them, why don't you just pack up and go to Ukraine for a couple of weeks? You'll come back and you'll do what the Pope does. You'll get down on the tarmac and you'll kiss the ground. We live in a bubble, and I am incredibly thankful for it, and I let God know often I thank him for the time I've lived. I thank him for the place that I've lived. I thank him for the people that I've lived with. I thank him for the resources that are available to me. And above all, I thank him for his call and grace on my life. And I do it regularly. I'm grateful and I express it. I intersperse my words with songs sometimes. I won't, uh, I won't subject you to that. But I'll sing give thanks with a grateful heart or some other song that says, Father, thank you. That easily leads into and overlaps with worship, and I worship him for who he is and what he's done. I thank him that he's creator. All things were made by him. Without him, there's nothing made that was made. I thank him that he's the sustainer. All things are held together by the word of your power. Without that, things would fly apart. They wouldn't cohere. They cohere because of your constant care over our world, and I'm grateful for it, and I thank you for it. I thank him that he's the redeemer. I mean... Thank you, Jesus. I don't know what else to say, but thank you, thank you, and thank you again. I thank him that he's the present Lord. All authority on heaven and earth has been given to him, and I invite him and ask him that he would exercise it. I thank him that he's the coming king. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. Maranatha. And, and as I say, sometimes I'll just stop. Sometimes I'll pause. Sometimes I'll speak in tongues. Sometimes I'll just listen. Other times I'll sing. I stand in awe of you. The other, the other day, I pulled that up from the old memory bank, Remember that one? I stand, I stand. I said I wasn't going to subject you to that. Didn't I? <laughs> I stand in awe of you. One of the things that I've done is I've learnt by memory a whole list of God's names. Names by which he reveals himself in the scriptures. And so at this point in my prayer, I go through those names with thanksgiving. And I say, Lord, you Jehovah said kinu, the Lord who is righteous. The Lord, my righteousness. And I thank you that you're merciful and gracious, you're abounding in covenant love and faithfulness. You, you show mercy to thousands of generations of those who love you, and yet you're just. You visit the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation. You're not to be trifled with. I worship you for who you are. You're righteous. You're Jehovah Makadesh, the Lord who sanctifies me. Um this, this one is, uh, you know, inviting the Lord to work in my life and say, Lord, there's much to sanctify, and, um, and, and I invite you to, to work in my life. You know, um, I, I, I was raised, a, or I became a Catholic in my teen years, and for those of you who know the Catholic uh, Church, you go to confession, and so as a good Catholic, I went to confession, and the priests soon realised that when Don Barry came to confession, shift work was on the cards. You know, uh, because there's, there's lots to confess. And, and uh, some things never change. And at this point, I come to Jehovah Makadesh and I, and I talk about things that, Lord, I'm really sorry that I did that. I'm really sorry that I said that. I feel bad that I think like that sometimes. Lord, would, would you come? And as I say, I intersperse it with thanks and prayer. Now, some of you might be thinking, look, is God so insecure you know, that you, you have to remind him how, how good he is. He's not one of these insecure athletes or entertainers who constantly reads his own rep- uh, press reports, is he? And, and has an ever present cadre of sycophants ho- ho- hovering around him. Is that the God you worship? And the answer, of course, is no. He doesn't need reminding who he is, I need reminding who he is. Reminds me of a story I heard about Margaret Thatcher one time. She was uh, PM at the time and in her uh, PM duties, um, she was going to visit a rest home and she went up to someone, you know, one of the older residents and said, hello, do you know who I am? And the woman looked up from what she was engaged in and sympathetically said to her, no dear, I don't, but if you go to the matron, she's really good at helping people who have forgotten who they are. <laughs> God God hasn't forgotten who he is. But I'm really capable in the midst of the things that swirl around me of forgetting how good he is and who he is. And so I remind myself as much as I thank him. So he's Jehovah Makadesh, the Lord who sanctifies. He's Jehovah Shalom, the one who makes all things whole. He takes the broken things and he puts them together. And I invite him to do that. And I take the badly broken things of my own life and the part of my world and I bring them before him. He's Jehovah Ra'at, the Lord my shepherd. I thank him for the way that he's led me, the way that he guides me, and I ask him to keep on doing that for the things that I face, for the things that we face. He's Jehovah Rofoi, the Lord our physician, and I bring before him the, the physical needs that I know of. And I, I lay those people before the Lord. He's Jehovah Gibor, the Lord who is mighty, wonderful in counsel, excellent in workings, mighty to deliver. He's Jehovah Nisai, the Lord my banner. And I'm reminded of the chuppah that, that, that sits over the Jewish bridal couple. They come under the banner, the chuppah, as they make their commitments to one another. And I'm reminded that his banner over me is love. He's Jehovah Jireh, the Lord who provides, and I thank him for the incredible provision that I've experienced. He's Jehovah Shammah, the Lord who is there, and I thank him for his presence. I don't take it for granted. I ask if there's anything that I've done that would offend that presence. Lord, you're Jehovah Makadesh, deal with it in my life. I want your presence. He's Elyon, the Most High God, possessor of heaven and earth. He's El Shaddai, the God who is sufficient and enough. He's El Rai. Elroy, the God who says, you can make a list, write it down. I mean, I know that list just by memory now for 40 years. I've I've prayed it through. And oftentimes those names will be an off-ramp, off the highway of the one prayer and into a neighborhood where I'll pray about certain things. Whether it's healing or guidance or sanctification. And, and when I'm finished and when I feel like I've done my dash on that, I get back onto the on, off, on ramp and I pray, Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And what I'm doing there is inviting His rule into, earth, into earth's circumstances. The kingdom of God, Romans says, is not meat and drink, but is righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Ghost. And when I'm praying for the kingdom of God, for his rule, I'm praying for righteousness to be brought into a situation. The result of that righteousness will be wholeness and joy. You know, the world wants wholeness and joy, but it doesn't want anything to do with righteousness. And I'm sorry, but righteousness is the fount from which the stream flows. And so when we're saying, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, I'm asking for that righteousness and the resulting wholeness and joy to come. And I pray for the circle of my touch. I pray for Karen and I. I pray for Dion and Janae and Donald and Neve and Indy and Beckett and Arrow. I pray for our family. I pray for my wider extended family. I pray for my brother and his family. And, I, and more often than not, I, I, I just, I name children and grandchildren. I don't necessarily pray in depth over them, I just name them before the Lord. And then I pray for Karen's extended family and I name them before the Lord. Sometimes I'll stop. Uh, One of of my brother's children is going through a really bad time so occasionally I'll just stop and I'll pray for Christopher. One of Karen's extended family, I'm her godfather and I committed, how long? She must be 35 now. I committed 35 years ago to pray for that girl, and I do. I, I don't pray in debt. I just name her before the Lord. Write the names down. You don't have to pray for hours over them. Just write them down. Name them before the Lord. Then I pray for the circle of my touch, and that's our faith community. I pray for the leaders. I pray for the staff. I name them. I pray for lots of you. If I know of things going on, I'll, I'll, I'll just I'll lift them before the Lord. I pray for our city. I pray for Paula Southgate, our mayor, and the councillors. And again, that sounds, oh man, it's been... No, no, I just say, Lord, would you bless Hamilton? Would you move in this city? Could it be a place of peace and a place where people come together to worship you? I pray for Paula Southgate and the councillors who serve with her. I pray for wisdom that they'd make good and godly decisions. I pray for our prime minister. Say, so well, you're a Labour supporter? Doesn't matter what I am. None of your business. As your political um, aspirations or leanings are none of mine. We aren't told to pray for the people that we feel led to. It says, pray for kings and prime ministers and priests. Lift them up before the Lord. So I pray for her. I pray for the government. Um, as I say, to be clear, I don't play often in extended ways. I lift their names before the Lord. I pray for the nations. Uh, Ukraine um, is a place right now that uh, I, I'm it, it presently occupies that place in my prayer time. And uh, you say, oh, how do you pray for a situation like Ukraine? And I don't really know. I pray in tongues a lot. Uh, I pray in the Spirit, saying, Lord, I don't even know. I, I, I resort to, Lord, have mercy, Christ, have mercy a lot. And, and to be fair and to be honest, I have to confess to being probably a little more directive regarding Mr. Putin than I probably should be. But I pray about that. I pray for people on both sides who love Jesus. And I don't know how else to pray, but to lift it before him. Now, all that I've said so far, our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. That could take as, as little as 10 minutes. Honestly, sometimes I get to an hour and that's all I've done. And I think, Lord, I've got, <laughs> excuse me, but I've got a couple of other things I've got to do here. And I'll pick it up later on, or at another time. If, if, you were, if you were watching from the outside, I don't think you'd be that impressed. My thoughts wander, I fumble in my words, I've fallen asleep in every conceivable position. <laughs> it's not always clear, it's not always simple, but I do show up, more often than not. Some, some days I miss. And I drag my feet into the presence of God the next day. Oh, I missed yesterday, Lord. I'm really sorry. And Father says, I'm delighted to see you. I love to hear your voice. Friends, we talk about a personal relationship with Jesus, but I don't know how you can have one if you're not setting yourself to be a person of prayer. Just find find a time. It might be your commute. I generally have turned my car into a place where I pray. Not always, but especially if I've got an extended journey. I had to go up to Auckland yesterday. I prayed in tongues pretty much the whole way up. On the way back, I listened to a whole lot of worship songs. I've turned my car into what I hope will be a thin place. Not if I have an accident. I hope it'll be a real thick place then. But (laughs) (laughs) you get a thin place by wearing it thin. And I want to exhort you through this, through this season, become a person of prayer. Find the place, find the time. If you don't know how to do it, pick, the, pick this prayer. Um, if, you, if you've got other ways of doing it that you think, I think my ways are better than, God bless you, go for it. Uh, I'm not saying everybody must do it this way. I resorted to this because I was struggling to work out how to pray for an extended period, and I just I, I just didn't know how to do it. And I thought, well, I should do it the way Jesus told me to do it. And it's worked pretty well for me for 40 years, and I'm recommending it to you. Experiment with it. Nick and team, would you come? And uh, next week, I'll pick up the rest of the prayer, okay? Because it's taken me 45 minutes just to do two lines. It's a bit like my prayer life. Um, We'll try and do the rest next week, okay? Thanks for listening. If you'd like to know more about our faith community, feel free to visit our website gatewaychurch.org.nz